Well, beloved of the Lord, it's a joy and privilege to bring to you this morning again God's Word. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah as we bring our series through the book of Isaiah to a close this morning. And a privilege to do so. You can find that on page 743 of our pew Bibles. We'll read from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 to the end of the book, in verse 24. So give your attention to the holy, infallible word of God. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come 
to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and there they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning together. Well, a little over a year ago, together we began our study in this book of Isaiah together. And it has been an adventure, hasn't it? We began seeing that vision of God's glory as Isaiah was called with his task to go preach to the people of Israel and Judah. And we went through the long trips of the valleys of judgment of God judging the nations in Israel. And we also reached the mountaintops of hope and joy. We heard God's judgment come upon Israel and all the world, and we also heard of his promise to enter into the story himself as the suffering servant and the anointed conquering king. And today we come to the last words of Isaiah, which are words filled with hope. He hopes in the glory that is to come. This book ends on a glorious high note. But remember, that the end of Isaiah's own life and ministry was, in fact, tragic. Even though Isaiah spoke throughout his ministry with clarity, boldness, and beauty, most of God's people, Israel and Judah, did not turn away from their evil ways to worship the one true God. Most of Israel despised Isaiah and his message. He was rejected by the religious and political leaders of his day. The people in power didn't like him, and so they got rid of him. Ancient Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was murdered by his own king, King Manasseh, king of Israel. And supposedly Isaiah hid himself inside of the crevice of a cedar tree, trying to escape the king who was intent on killing him. And King Manasseh found him, and he ordered that the tree would be sawn in half with Isaiah still in it, and blood spilt out from that tree, which fits with the New Testament where it says in Hebrews chapter eleven thirty-seven that others were sawn in two, those in the Old Testament, probably referring to Isaiah, of whom the world was not worthy. And so it's most likely that this prophet, Isaiah, the preacher, the poet, was sawn in half by his own king, He had invested so much in Israel, and they disposed of him like trash. It was a tragic ending. And yet here, at the end of his ministry, Isaiah looks through his present darkness with hope of future glory. Isaiah was able to rejoice in the middle of his difficulties. How? By setting his heart on God's promised glory still to come. And this is very practical for all of us again this morning, because in our own present difficulties, we too can rejoice if we find Isaiah's hope. Whatever fears, failures, or frustrations that you are facing today in your life, God this morning wants to comfort you with the good news of hope from this scripture passage. And here Isaiah sees the final act of God's whole story. 
the final act from the cross of Jesus to the grand finale of all things. In other words, he sees how it's all going to end. And spoiler alert for the story of God, God will win and get all the glory in the end and his people will overcome the world by their faith in Jesus Christ. Three points that we'll consider this morning from the text. First, the final rejoicing. Secondly, the final judgment. And thirdly, the final gathering. First, the final rejoicing in verses 7 to 14 of our passage. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase baby blues. It's also known as postpartum depression. Baby blues or postpartum depression is this deep sadness that suddenly comes upon a woman after giving birth to a child. It doesn't happen with all women, but for some, a certain percentage it does. The radical hormone changes that occur in the woman's body during and after birth can affect their mental health significantly, not to mention the other factors as well, such as the fatigue after a long delivery, the lack of good sleep, and a complete disruption of the ordinary routine that the mother had prior to the baby. These are the pains of childbirth that sometimes result in depression after delivery or the baby blues. Well, here in verses 7 to 14, what does Isaiah envision? He envisions the exact opposite of baby blues and postpartum depression. He sees what we might call baby jubilees and postpartum joy. Who is this mother and what kind of birth is he talking about? Well, the mother he calls Zion in verse 8, and in verse 10, Jerusalem. So this is symbolic language. It refers to God's people, his church. Isaiah here foresees the sudden birth of God's people into a state of glory and joy. And unlike childbearing under the present curse of sin, this future birth will happen suddenly. He says, before labor before pain, and therefore, without those labor pains, there will be great joy to follow with no sadness at all. And not all, as I mentioned, not all experience that postpartum depression or baby blues after giving birth. In fact, many new mothers actually get a glimpse of this glory right after birth in a time that is often called the golden hours. It's this special time of bonding that takes place between a mother and her child immediately after birth, where the newborn child is placed skin to skin on his mother's breast, and the child latches on and takes in for the first time that nutrient-rich milk from his own mother. And if all goes well, it is a moment of sweet bliss. And that's what Isaiah is picturing for us here. The golden hours of bonding with God and his people to God's glory and to the great comfort and delight of God's people. What is this talking about then? Well, this refers to God here bringing forth his people from death to dwell with him in the new creation with resurrected life. And that's what we considered last week together, the new creation promise in Isaiah 65. And who will do this great work? We'll look at verse 9. Verse 9, the Lord God speaks with these rhetorical questions here to show us a great truth that without a shadow of a doubt, 
God will open up the womb of the earth and cause it to bring forth his children. So remember this, that the Lord God, our God, does not leave any of his works half finished. That which he begins, he will bring to completion every time. Therefore, if you believe in Jesus now, that means he has already begun a good work in you and that he will surely bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's good news for us, that on that last day, when Jesus returns, God will open up your grave and bring forth your body from death unto eternal life. Four years ago, the body of my good friend and mentor in the faith, Jameson Stockhouse, was buried six feet underground in a simple pine wood box in the hill of Santa Barbara. And as his wife and four young children stood there, gripped with sorrow, looking at his casket and the open grave before them, I remember what the pastor said that day. He said, because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, this is not just a grave. This is a womb. And so Christians, because we belong to the one who beat death, Jesus Christ, we too will beat death when he returns. He will call our bodies to come forth from the grave, just as he did with his friend Lazarus. In Christ, the grave that is before you and before me is not the end. The resurrection of Jesus has turned the grave into a womb. And here the Lord promises to powerfully bring forth his people from the womb of their distress in this life and even death itself to bring us into eternal blessedness with him. And who will be raised in resurrected glory? Who are the children described here? Who will enjoy those endless hours of golden hours in comfort and delight with God? We'll look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. So these are the blessed ones. All those who show their love for God, how? By rejoicing with the church in all her triumphs and weeping with the church in all her trials. Is this not what our Lord Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And how will this comfort and satisfaction look and feel? Look at verse 11. It will be like those golden hours that a baby has, skin to skin on his mother's consoling breast, drinking deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. As I thought of this, I think this is the best possible picture of rest, security, comfort, and peace. In those moments, after the trauma of leaving the comfortable, cozy, warm womb of his mother, that trauma of passing through, the newborn at his mother's breast is at a state of nearly heavenly bliss. And most of us experienced such comfort and delight 
after our birth, but we have long forgotten what it felt like. And here God promises us such comfort and delight after the trauma of this difficult life and even through the valley of death itself. The Apostle Paul writes about this hope in 2 Corinthians where he says this, So we do not lose heart for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Light and momentary affliction, what we're suffering now, in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that Isaiah is describing for us here. And how will we be comforted? Who can accomplish such marvelous things? Look at verses 12 to 14. The Lord God himself will personally extend peace like a river to his people, bringing nourishment and life in abundance to them. God himself will take us up and comfort us like a mother who always keeps her infant child close to her, nursing the child and bouncing the child upon her lap and on her breast comforting the child. Mothers of newborns are always near their infant child. There's a nearness, a bond that is there. And so too, God will be personally near to each and every one of us in that glory to comfort us and to cheer us. Our Lord Jesus speaks of this eternal joy and hope that we have set before us in John chapter 16 with the very same analogy of childbirth, where he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we go through the trials and the sorrows of this life, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have sorrow now, yes, but we also have hope. Hope that once we attain this heaven that Isaiah speaks of here, that God himself will turn every agony into a glory, and no one will take away the joy that we will have in Christ. This is the final rejoicing that Isaiah envisions here for us. But Isaiah, as a great preacher and an evangelist, he doesn't end there, does he? He also issues in the next part of the passage a solemn warning to anyone who refuses God's offer of salvation. And so that's our second point, the final judgment. The close of verse 14, right on the heels of great rejoicing, Isaiah says, the Lord shall show his indignation against his enemies. Friends, this is the God of the Bible, the same one that we read about in Exodus 34, which says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Isaiah warns us here that the Lord God will come in fiery judgment against any and all who refuse his offer of salvation and forgiveness, all who refuse the blood of Jesus to clear their guilt will be visited by God in judgment, and he will judge them for their guilt. Now, why does Isaiah describe it as fire? Well, fire is safe as long as it is controlled, like in a campfire or in a fireplace. But a fire becomes deadly when it is set free, and no sword or gun can stop a raging whirlwind of fire. And so, too, God's wrath is constrained right now, controlled and restrained by his patience, his forbearance. He has held back the burning anger of his wrath against sin by the firewalls of his mercy and kindness. But God has set a date and a time in the future only known to him in which those protective walls will come down and his wrath will be unleashed with fury like a wildfire. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unchanging heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What, what Paul is saying there is that the fact that God is currently holding back his anger against you now, giving you a measure of peace, is his kindness meant to turn your heart towards him, away from sin and to your creator, so that you would change and give your heart to him in faith. But if you remain hard-hearted against God and his offer of salvation, then be warned. You are storing up wrath against yourself when Christ returns in judgment. On that final day when Jesus appears in glory, all who hope in him shall be like him, rejoicing in glory. And on that same day, all evil at work in this world will be put to a swift in final end. With that grand finale before us, Isaiah, in the passage, he actually takes a step back in verses 18 to 23 to tell us about the time leading up to that day of resurrection and day of judgment. And that is our third point, the final gathering. Isaiah says in his day, the time is coming. Well, friends, The time has come and is already here. These verses here are the clearest prophecy in the Old Testament about the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. Isaiah shows us that God would send out his survivors, that is, his remnant people, out where? To the nations. The picture here is of the Lord God sending his people to the ends of the earth, to people that have not heard of God's fame or seen his glory. And what will they do? Verse 19, they shall declare my glory among the nations. And look at verse 21. 
From among the nations, God will take some as priests to offer worship to God forever. And again, this is speaking of the church, God's people today, and the great commission that Jesus gave us. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples on that day which was the beginning of the final gathering that Isaiah envisioned many years before. And this is, beloved of God, our mission, our task, our duty of love in response to all that God has done. Once we were not God's people, but now by his mercy we are God's people. And as Peter says of us Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so if you believe in Jesus, this identity that's declared here is true of you. And not only that, this mission is also yours as well. The identity of Christian and the mission of the great commission that Christ gave us to make disciples. They're inseparable. They're tied together. All Christians are called to participate in this great final gathering of God's people from among the nations. And so this means that God has employed you to declare his glory to the people around you, those who are in need of good news. Remember, we have hope to share with our friends, family, and neighbors we have sorrows in this life, yes, but we mourn as those who have hope, a hope for the redemption of our bodies, to enjoy the endless golden hours of bonding with God in the new creation. You could put it in this way, we have the hope for the surprising reversal of every tragedy at the end of the age when Christ returns. We have the good news to share with others, Christians, you are called by God to participate in this final gathering. You are equipped and empowered by God to do so. Now, before we close, I want you to look at verse 19. Look back at verse 19. We skipped over this important promise that is here. Verse 19, God says, And I will set a sign among them. A sign among them, set up by God. Here Isaiah foretold that God would lift up a sign in the midst of his people. By that sign, God would reveal his glory, prove his love, and draw all peoples to himself to worship their creator. What is the sign? Commentator Alec Moitier says this, Isaiah does not say what the sign is, but since this passage lies in the time period between the two comings of Jesus, the sign can only be the cross. The cross of Jesus is the sign that God has lifted up in the midst of his people, in the midst of this world, to reveal his glory and prove his love. For there on the cross, the Son of God died to forgive us 
all our sins, to beat the power of death over us, and to make us children of God. Jesus' death on the cross and his victory over the grave are for us the sign of our sure hope that all that God has promised will come true. You see, despite the tragedy of his own ministry and the catastrophe of humanity's failures that Isaiah saw firsthand, Isaiah saw beyond them to the God who would set up a sign of his glory and gather a people to himself from among all nations. And he trusted that God's sign would be a sudden turn that would change the world forever and ensure a blessed resolution to God's story. Isaiah, we could say, envisioned the eucatastrophe of God's story. That word eucatastrophe comes from the author of The Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote this in one of his letters. He said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, which means the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings tears. And I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces the essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one reconciled and lost in love. Christians, this is the peace and joy that you and I will have in Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sign that God has lifted up in time and in space, in human history, that sudden happy turn in the story has already taken place. And so, beloved, even if our lives and our ministry in this world might seem tragic, like a catastrophe, like Isaiah's did, we too can rejoice like Isaiah did, because we have this hope of great joy beyond the grave in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we do indeed rejoice in the victory that you have accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our King. We thank you that through his death and resurrection, we now have eternal life and the promise of resurrected life and the new creation to come. Lord, we ask that you would instill within us the hope of these promises through the sign that you have lifted up and the eyewitness testimonies that we find in the New Testament of those who saw firsthand Jesus dead and resurrected again. And Lord, may we live with this living hope, weeping as those who have hope in the midst of a troubled life, trusting that the joy to come will not be taken away from us. Lord, give us this triumphant, defiant hope against all odds. By faith in Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.